0: So, Wade, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. Can we just get a quick clarification? It is, it is definitely pronounced Zapier, right? Like it's super classy?
1: <laughs> yeah, the fancy version. Uh, Zapier makes you happier. That's the trick we will we go with. But, you know, when you're, when you're in the early days, the, the second P is expensive. Domains are hard to come by. Uh,
2: <laughs> that's the reason.
1: <laughs> well, the real reason is actually we wanted API in the, the name. Uh, and so the original logo had API in gray, and everything else was in orange. Oh, I remember but that's that. Just,
0: yeah, so it's just three engineers being too clever for our own good. Was the notion immediately right away that they would be called zaps, or was that sort of like an afterthought?
1: That was always the case. It's like, hey, we had our app directory at the time was called the zap book. Uh, and yeah, it's like you set up zaps. Um, zaps sound awesome. Zapes that sounds... I don't know. It sounds weird.
0: <laughs> I feel zapes. like uh, zaping is a thing that I shouldn't do. Yeah. Like, zaping is what or all or the teenagers like are doing
1: these days, right? <laughs> it's, it's not good for them. No. Yeah. But zapping is fun.
0: It is. All right. Well, since we're into the show and for listeners who don't already
2: know who you are, David, can you, uh, can you introduce our guest a little bit? Yeah. So Wade, uh, who we are super lucky to have with us, is the co-founder and CEO of Zapier, as we discussed, a company that to the best of our knowledge and on the internet, hasn't really raised uh, capital or at least not capital like many of your peers, doesn't have an office, uh, doesn't have salespeople, and your product is connecting other people's products. Yet despite that, or maybe because of all that, it's actually one of the most interesting private SaaS companies in the world today. You guys have grown to over 50 million in profitable ARR in just seven short years. And um, we are super excited to have you here to dive into the whole story behind it. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It should be fun.
2: As uh, our listeners know, and uh, Wade, you're about to find out, we like to go way back on the show. Can you tell us about the band that you guys were in (laughs) before the company?
1: Sure. So Brian and I were in a, uh, a jazz and blues combo. We'd play like Miles Davis stuff and John Coltrane stuff, just like around Columbia, Missouri. Uh, It's not like there's a ton of places to gig in Columbia, Missouri, but enough. Uh,
2: Did you guys start in college?
1: That's actually how I met Brian. I played in the college jazz band, but Brian, I knew because there was like this combo thing that was happening sort of over on the side. And um, I never played in a group with him at the time but I had heard his group play. And so like, I knew they were good. He was a good bass player. And I knew they were, his group always was like writing songs. Most of the rest of us were covering things and they were always like writing new stuff.
2: Sounds like typically like he's an engineer and you're a product manager. Sounds about
1: right. (laughs) Yeah, something like that, right? So later on, I got reconnected to him because I was working at a small software company and I was trying to teach myself how to code. I was like getting more into this. There wasn't like a ton of engineers in town, and Brian was one of the few that I knew. I was like, oh, I I remember that guy who played in the bass and like wrote songs. Like, I'm pretty sure he's making stuff. You could find like you just see him on the internet, and he could do all sorts of things. So I hit him up, and I was like, hey, you know, and like you know, hang out. We caught up one time, and I was like, hey, I'm trying to like build this you know site and trying to make this thing. You think you could help me out? And he's like, sure. And so I was you know, he helped me out with and, and this is things. like 2012. This would 2013? have been 2010. Um, 2010, okay. Yeah, probably probably 2010, yeah. Then he was like, by the way, we need a better sax player. <laughs> Do you want to play in my band? And I was like, well, fair is fair. You're helping me with the site. Like, I'll I'll, I'll be more happy than come play in the, the band. And so we just hit it off. And, you know, before you know it, like, we were playing gigs together. We were building sites together. Uh, we ended up working at the same company together. We were just spending a lot of time together on stuff basically
2: (laughs) the story is a little bit different but it was actually building tools for bands but you know uh venmo which we've covered on the show also kind of came out of like the the philadelphia not uh columbia but music scene Mm
1: -hmm. yeah well i think music is like a good way to sort of feel out like if you could be you know good co-founders together because like it's not glamorous you don't make a lot of money You have to collaborate. You have to like each other's style. Like it's a little bit subjective, but it's also quite objective in certain places. And it's a small group of people doing things for the fun of it. So it's like if you can get along in a band, like you can probably get along pretty well in a startup.
0: You know, there is that element of creativity where you have to trust when someone wants to go out on that creative limb and they seem a little crazy, but you also do have the objective feedback of like, do people like this or not? And like, you do have to listen to that. Yeah. And you have to, you know, there's a certain like agreements, like we're playing in a certain key and there's a certain time.
1: Like you can't go outside that box, but you know, the box is still pretty big. So like, you know, do what you want (laughs) as long as you stay in time.
0: Right. All right. So Wade, take us from this moment up through the, uh, the famed startup weekend.
1: Sure. So, I mean, honestly, it, literally we were just spending tons of time together, like doing side projects, playing in the band. We had the same day job and through all, all that, you know, just when you're hanging out with friends, you discuss a lot of different things. And oftentimes we would just talk about product ideas we'd have, um, that we would be interested in building or maybe trying to, trying to make. And, you know, we, Most of them were just ideas. That's where it stopped. It was just like, oh, wouldn't it be cool? You could build a business like this or you can make a product and I think it would be successful. And then one day, middle of the workday, Brian uh, messaged me on iChat and was like, hey, what about an idea to connect all these different tools? Like we're using all these different tools at work. We're building around all these different tools and none of them hook up together. People keep hiring us to connect these tools. It's kind of expensive to hire us. It would just be easier if they had off the shelf software that they could use to set up an ing- integration between Wufu and MailChimp or Google Contacts and high rise or PayPal and QuickBooks or whatever. My reaction to that was like, oh, of course, like it was just such an obviously good thing. I was at the time in my day job dealing with the Marketo API and it was hard to use. <laughs> it was like an old like soap wisdom API. <laughs> So it was hard to begin with.
2: You have to be generous Marketo is, I assume, a, a Zapier partner now, right?
1: They are, yes. Uh, and their APIs are much better now. Um, but in 2010, like they were not as good. But it wasn't just Marketo's problem. Uh, I was also a bad engineer. So I'm not putting this all on Marketo. I was equally bad at engineering. And so for me, I was like, this would... This would be my ideal choice is to have off the self software. I'm not writing code because I just love to write code. I'm writing code because like, I have no choice. I have to figure this out because it's the only way to get it done. So my reaction when he pitched that to me was, yeah, of course this should exist.
0: And, And how different is Zapier today than sort of like the idea that was discussed in that moment? Like, was it pretty much fully like, yes, this is exactly it. And then from that moment on, like you had a clear roadmap and people liked it and it worked or have you sort of changed it along the way?
1: The the roots are the, the same. Like that original seed is like at the core of Zapier. There's tons of stuff that have sort of like branched off and like added it to the idea and sort of made it and evolved it. But that seedling is still the core of what Zapier is today.
0: That's super cool. It's so funny how you notice that with like, Uber or like there's, there's some of these startups where like the two sentence pitch is just like, oh, yeah, no, that's a super good idea, specifically at this moment in time. And then like that is pretty much still the company a decade later.
1: And, you know, the company I'd been at prior, like it was the exact opposite. It was like hard to explain. No one want, like tried to use it. The activation rates were low. It was hard to sell the thing. And so when we started working on Zapier, it was like the exact opposite. People wanted this thing. They got it. They paid money for it. Like, the product was bad at first. Like, it just was not very good because it was an early prototype. Like, we just hadn't gotten very far with it. And even still, they loved it. So that, to me, was like, we're on to something here. Like, if we can make this simple and easy and accessible, like, we win. It's game
2: over. Like, we've got it. I mean, it's a a brilliant idea. And obviously, like, I think it was twenty. 13 when i first discovered you guys so a few years in and i was like oh yeah this is brilliant this makes sense but what do you think was in the timing in the ecosystem that made like that moment the right time i can think of a few things but i'm just i'm curious your perspective
1: well so apis had started to be a thing like open apis were not as common so you think about you know salesforce they had like they were probably the most sophisticated at the time but you also had companies like mailchimp Uh, like GitHub, um, Zendesk, QuickBooks, that were like the sort of Gen 1, SaaS 1.io folks had APIs. You also had API-first companies that were launching around that time. So Twilio, Stripe, SendGrid. This was like right around their sort of like first or second year in business. And so it was like, if you'd have tried to do this business a year ago or two years ago, you just couldn't like the the tooling didn't exist to even do the business. And of course, if you'd have done it a couple of years later, well, you just we were already there like uh, and there was other people working on this idea at the same time. Like we certainly weren't the
2: only people doing it. Um, but you had a pretty unique approach. Was there anybody else that was taking like a user centric approach? Because there was MuleSoft, there was Apogee that were taking like a company like help you build your APIs approach. But you guys had the like, no, no, no we're going to we're not going to focus on the partners, I mean, you focus on that, but you're like, the product is for people who are integrating stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there was so Ift, I think is probably the most well known that folks would would recognize, but there was others that you just never heard of. like they the companies are totally gone, they're out of business and just didn't survive, that were like trying to do similar versions of this. And there was even a company that did get a little bit of traction that got acquired by Intuit, um, like a couple years into, our lifetime. That was like, they were a little bit ahead of their time. I think it was like really well, it was like a very engineering product. It didn't have quite the user experience that we did. Was it like
0: APRA or Apogee? It was called, it does it
1: um, was the name of the company. And they were like, like you could do all the stuff. And so in some things you could even do better than what Zapier does today, honestly, but it was just hard. Like you still had to be like pretty engineering to make it work. And none of these companies had, like, good marketing at all. Like, they were hard to find, honestly.
0: Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments.
2: Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how QuarterPro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. QuarterPro has built a world-class user interface for this.
0: Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search guidance or market outlook. QuarterPro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of
2: their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through Literally every individual slide in Quarter's database covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides.
0: no dot e, com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter this is a good jumping off point into a, a different topic and i'm going to jump around our our sort of outline here a little bit but so you said those are pretty engineering one of the hallmarks of zapier today at least by my assessment of all the different friends that i have at companies that use it is like it holds a lot of companies together. And I would say startups, but like it is shocking how late stage a lot of these companies are where their sort of internal operational infrastructure is still held together, not by building their own engineering stuff, but by like some savvy ops person being like, ah, now I can do this with Zapier. And that living for like five to 10 years. How do you think about the fact that like there are big companies that's important infrastructure is held together by zaps?
1: One, I think it's awesome. Like I think these businesses were held together by spreadsheets before us. And we've made that even easier for those types of people to like level up their skills, you know, just to the next bit. I think our challenge is like, how do we make zaps more durable, more reliable? And I think we've done a pretty darn good job of that. But I do think there's even more we can do to make that stuff. Yeah, durable, reliable, you know, over time, where, you know, like you said, you were like, hey, it's remarkable that it's built on Zapier. I want you to have that reaction of it's remarkable in the sense of like, that's awesome versus like, uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right. That you people would think of it not as a hack, but think of it, which I'm sure is how it was when you got started, oh, totally, and think yeah. more like, hey, this is actually a uh, trusted part of my, like, this is robust infrastructure and this is what people do when they want robust infrastructure. Yeah,
1: And the, I mean, the reality is like, it's, it is surprisingly durable. Like it does last a long way. I was just talking to one of our early employees. Cause I'm, I have another talk that I'm working on and I'm, I, I was asking him, Hey, what's like one of your biggest lessons learned? And he was like, people overthink stuff in the early days. He's like, you can put like a v.1 process or system in place and it will scale for years and years and years way past what you thought it would have gotten to so like just don't overthink this stuff you can get pretty far on these off-the-shelf software these days
0: it's actually a good thing where you didn't say low code or no code, but there's this definite movement going on right now that sort of takes takes this notion of, you know, you don't have to, to overthink something and build something really robust and loop in your engineering team. And what you actually should do is just get something out that works. Zapier to me feels like one of the three companies that's always named when people are um, citing this, you know, sexy movement that's going on right now in, in low code, like number one, how do you think about that? And number two, sort of what's it like when when a movement kind of falls in your lap like that and you get lumped into, or maybe it was more intentional than that. I don't know. I, I should stop uh, naming it and let you uh, jump off that.
1: Well, certainly no one called it no code in 2011 when we started the company. Like that was not really a thing. Along the way, people have tried to name it. Um, you know, I heard uh, like Citizen Developer was one that like the forrester or gartner analysts like to use which i know that i was like eh, it's not quite right
2: are most of your users not developers right
1: yeah they're not developers they're like they're they're software users like they use software to get their job done so you know if you know how to use software you you know how to use zapier is kind of the best way to describe it i guess Yeah, you probably need to have like a little bit of logic thinking, you know, you can think in sort of like, hey, when this thing happens, I want this other thing to happen. But that doesn't mean you're necessarily an engineer, um, at least not like a traditional software engineer, the way I think most people think about it. So it's been really fun because, yeah, in the last, I don't know, 18 months, 24 months, the no code thing, like it finally there's like a name to this that sort of stuck and feels good and like people are rallying behind it. Um, But it's something that's been happening for a long time. People have built companies off the back of Zapier that were non-technical founders for a long time. One of the things we're trying to do is democratize access to this stuff. You shouldn't have to be an engineer. You shouldn't have to be like the elite to make this stuff happen. These tools should be accessible to anybody.
2: This could sound wrong because I want to be clear up front. Engineering is critically important. I don't mean to denigrate it at all. However, Mm -hmm. the we've gone just like I've seen it in the investing side from over the last year from engineering is a absolute critical core competency you must have as part of a company from day one to yeah that's kind of a question mark it kind of depends what you're doing and if you're doing the right things like no you can use Zapier you can use Webflow you can use a bunch of stuff and get really far without it.
1: Totally I mean the company we were at Before Zapier was, they specialized in selling VA loans, so home mortgages, and they predominantly were a tech-enabled business. World-class marketing and sales operation. They never raised a dollar. They're probably up to 2,000 employees now. Their engineering department was so-so, honestly. Like, it was pretty mediocre and didn't exist for the longest time, honestly. Like, they, you know, mostly were just, like, really good at PPC, And so that's how they scale their business. So it just depends on what you're doing.
0: Do you have a favorite example of like someone who built something that even you were shocked where you were like, oh my God, you could do all this with Zaps?
1: (laughs) I mean, you could just go like check out Ben Tossel's stuff on makerpad.co. Any of the things those people are building is just like, like blows my mind. They're building like Airbnb clones and job boards and Reddit clones and like all sorts of stuff off the back of. I like to call it AWZ, Airtable, Webflow, and Zapier.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Connect the dots for us between there was this market opportunity right around when you started Zapier of there are all these software tools. They have APIs. SaaS is finally going mainstream. And then you guys won. And in the interim, there were all these other competitors that didn't win. What obviously there's a lot of luck involved, but like (laughs) to your mind, were there a few key decisions or features of you guys, or was it simply that you were good at marketing and nobody else was what, what helped you win?
1: We worked hard. That I think is probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. We were good. We were definitely better at marketing than all of them. I think we found like a repeatable model. You know, through our developer platform to just get enough apps on the platform that allowed us to get some network effects that we were able to just sort of race in front of everybody else and made it really hard for anyone to help.
2: You started with 35 or so integrations that you guys built, but then pretty early on you opened a developer platform to let anybody bring their own integrations, right?
1: Yep, yep. And people did, earlier than you would expect. They were earlier than most... Like most people say, like, hey, we're going to build a platform, and you know that's how we're going to grow. I've seen it enough now that I'm like, eh, 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 prove it. Uh, and so it, it sounds like, even in hindsight, I'm kind of surprised it worked for us. The only reason I can think that it worked was just that it was valuable. Like people wanted it, even without the network. It was like, hey, if I can just connect to these 50 other apps, like that alone is valuable. I don't care how popular Zapier is yet. I don't care that it's not a household name. It solves a big problem for me as is.
2: It's funny this is a totally different domain obviously, but it reminds me a little bit of Instagram versus Hipstamatic. Like Instagram and Hipstamatic did the exact same things as they made your photos look better, but Hipstamatic just lived on your camera on on your phone and your camera roll and then but Instagram had the network attached to it and like in in your own way, you know, that was a, a difference between you guys and some of your competitors.
1: Yeah. But the thing with Instagram is the network didn't matter in the early days. Like what mattered was the filter thing. It was like, oh, I just want to take my pictures with Instagram because they look cool.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. The whole come for the tool, stay for the network. Yeah. yeah. Totally. People
2: probably don't even remember Hipstamatic, but it, it was also a filter tool, but did there was no that? network. Atta- it did the same uh-huh. thing. And it was big. It was earlier than Instagram, bigger than Instagram to start but
1: they didn't attach it to a network.
2: They didn't attach it to a network. And I think Hipstamatic, I believe was 99 cents and, and Instagram was free. How did you guys figure out your pricing strategy? And was there any element of this?
1: Uh, oh, God. How did we figure our pricing strategy? Well, I'll tell you this. It started pretty silly. So we were in a room. This was like we just got accepted into YC. YC's is la- we're like, I think we're ready to launch. We should probably launch. And so YC is big. These guys are talking about launching. They're just like, you should just launch. So they just sort of like do it. And we're like, okay, well, if we're going to launch, we need like pricing for this stuff. We didn't have pricing, but we wanted to launch the next day. And so we had to figure out, okay, what are we going to, how are we going to price this? Thing? Literally so- the next day. Yeah, yeah, we're going <laughs> to do it the next way, um, yeah. <laughs> which people think that it needs to be more than that, but it, it probably doesn't. <laughs> um, we were up all night like arguing about what the best pricing plan would be. You know, All of us had read various different best practices and stuff on it, and we kept citing stuff. Someone was like, well, it needs to end with a nine, and another one would be like, well, actually, no, it should end with a zero because that shows that it's higher value, Oh, well, three three plans is best. No, four is better. You know, we're just sort of arguing. But we had none of us had any, like, actual data to back it up. It was just based off these random blog posts that other people had written. And eventually, I don't know which one of us... It was like a Mexican standoff. Like, we're all just sort of, like, frustrated with each other. And I'm not sure which one of us blinked first. But somebody said, screw it. Like, none of us know anything. Like, we don't know what the best pricing plan is. So let's just make our pricing plan the Fibonacci sequence. So literally our first plans were $11, $23 and $58.
0: No way. And that's to so make great. it
1: even nerdier, we went all in on the zap theme and named the plans uh volts, amps and ohms. Um and so that's the <laughs> pricing model we launched with. Like, it it was dumb, but it worked. Like, people started paying us. Uh, And, you know, I think probably three months later, we changed it up to something, like, a little more normal, I guess, for lack of a better word. But it just goes to show that uh, if you make something people like, don't overthink the pricing stuff. Now, pricing is very important. Don't get me wrong. But on day one, like, nobody knows. Just just start.
2: This is (laughs) related to the product approach you took, too, but certainly, you know, not your direct competitors, but MuleSoft and Apogee and the like, their whole mindset was enterprise and like, oh, we're going to go out and we're going to do enterprise sales. We're going to land six, seven figure deals. You took the opposite approach and and especially in kind of a new category, let people use it and start getting hooked on it instead of like talk to a sales rep.
1: Yeah, well, we felt like that was pretty important because we're connecting tools that had freemium models, like we're connecting MailChimp and Basecamp and Evernote and Dropbox and all these sort of bottoms up tools that people sort of self serve, they like fall in love with the user experience. We felt like we needed a model that was congruent with that. That was basically the sort of one philosophical thing is like, this is how people in this segment of the market buy software. So we need to be able to be purchased in a similar way.
0: So it makes sense to get started that way. I'm curious if you've thought about sort of now there's this category emerging of RPA. And I think for someone that's been using Zapier for a long time, you're like, well, wait a minute, that's not so different from what I've been doing, but it's more enterprisey and it's sold in this enterprisey way. And, you know, it involves more screen scraping than you guys. So how do you look at like, gosh, there's this big emerging enterprise opportunity. Should we or should we not go chase that?
1: Well, I mean, it certainly is pretty powerful. I think I saw UiPath announced they're at like $300 in revenue in 2019. Um, So clearly a big business in RPA. You know, I think you just have to figure out, though, like, your company only gets to chase so many things. And I think too often in Silicon Valley, we stretch ourselves way too thin, trying to do way too much. It's just trying to understand, like, where can you win? And in the places you can win, you want to win big. But if you stretch yourself really thin, you're, you might actually not win anywhere. I think the thing we're always looking for is like if we're going to get into something, we want to be able to do it really well. So that's not to say we won't do RPA, but if we do decide to do it, like we're going to do it because we feel like we have some unique insight that you know the existing market is not serving very well.
0: All right. So here's a hypothetical posit. If I said, all right, Wade, here is $100 million on more than fair terms, like it uh, respects the fact that you have pretty decent leverage at this point in any negotiation because, oh, my God, you've built this great, profitable, nicely scaling business. Is there something interesting you could do with that to say, OK, we're now going to go run at this enterprise opportunity?
2: Uh, and how many times a day do you get pitched that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I think if you do that, it takes all the creativity out of the process. Like you're going to dive into gestion, really the first chapter of high growth handbook. There's an interview with Mark Andreessen where he talks about this, where the biggest constraint in most companies, well, let me back up. Most companies, when you think about R and D, they think about, hey, we're going to give a percentage of our our budget to R and D. Uh, we're going to say, you know, I don't know, ten percent or twenty percent or whatever is going to be sort of focused on R and D, and that's how we're going to create new products and we're going to innovate and all that sort of stuff. Let's throw ten million or twenty million or fifty million at this problem and we'll figure it out. But what Mark posits is, money is usually not the constraining factor. Usually, the constraining factor is this concept of product pickers. And this is sort of like people in your company who are capable of creating like new creative products that people would want to buy. And I think there's some truth to that. You know, you can give a $100 million all you want, but you still need like, who's going to be the person that does this? I just got done another example of this. Have you all watched Ford versus Ferrari yet?
2: Oh, so good.
1: Good Yeah, so... This movie is awesome. And there's a scene in there where Henry Ford II is asking Shelby, like, hey, say money wasn't a problem, like, could you do it? And his answer is like, maybe, like, you might not actually, like, money might not be enough. Like, what you really need is, like, the driver and this other person. And so it's a little bit like that where, yeah, don't get me wrong, money is hugely valuable for building companies. But the team is really at the end of the day the constraining factor.
2: I've been reading um, Charlie Munger's uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac, uh, which is so great. You guys are kind of like a you like a Berkshire Hathaway of uh, uh, a company <laughs> of software companies, if there ever was one. And he has this great point in there that I never I never heard. There's so much in this good in this book. It's so good. And he's like most businesses that are great enduring businesses. People think about them wrong. They only do one or maybe two things that are very simple, very well. And he talks about Costco. He's like, Costco is all about like discount warehouses and they are a fantastic business. They're not trying to compete with uh target. They're not trying to compete with Amazon. They could try that, but that would just dilute the focus of what they are doing really well. Yeah. You just,
1: I think you got to know where it is that you are going to win and then make sure that you do that really well.
0: Wade, I'd love to move here into uh, a little bit of a conversation about remote work. So you are uh, speaking to us from your home office, which is sort of your only office. And I think you guys are one of the most... uh, maybe vocal, probably the better way to put it is the the most, one of the top two or three most well-known companies who have pulled off uh, remote work. And when I say remote work, I mean fully distributed, fully remote company. So I'd love to launch into a little discussion there and say, how did that come to be? Did that sort of happen accidentally? Did that happen very intentionally? And then, uh, then we can get into it a little bit.
1: Yeah. So it it wasn't like, you know, hey, what's the pros and cons checklist of having an office or not having an office? Um, I think a lot of people thought that it was like that, but really it was more like you have some cards that are dealt you, like what hand do you play? And in our case, at the tail end of YC, Mike was moving back to Missouri to be with his then girlfriend, now wife, as she was wrapping up law school. And we're not kicking him out because he's too important. And so we were just like, hey, we'll, we'll just go back to sort of working via, you know, chat and GitHub pull requests and like Trello boards and stuff like that, because that's what we were doing before we had like all been in the same place. Zapr was a side project before. Uh, so we were used to like kind of not working together. And then a second thing happened at the same time, which is we hired our first person and we would never hired anyone before. And so we asked for advice, hey, how would you go about de-risking this situation? And, and some folks recommended, just work with old colleagues, people that you already sort of trust and have a good working relationship with. And all those people are back in the Midwest. They're not in California. So we hired a, a, a guy I'd worked with who was in Chicago. And then we hired another one who was in Columbia, Missouri. And so, you know, five people were in three different cities. A couple things happened. Features kept getting shipped users kept signing up uh customers kept paying us
0: the world didn't fall apart and yeah the team the was office. happy yeah
1: yeah the team was happy customers were happy so like all the sort of basics like like this seems fine like it actually seems more than fine it seems even good
2: was so, uh was silicon valley orthodoxy like telling you you were crazy at this point
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is 2012, and, like, people are like, no company has ever been built this way. No one will ever buy you. This
2: isn't going to um, scale, blah, blah, Yeah, blah. just
1: all the sort of reasons why it wouldn't work. And we're just sort of here looking at it and being like, I mean, it's, you're not wrong that there's not big companies like this, but also it's working, so... you know, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) And they're
2: like, no, your pricing needs to end in a nine. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) I read a blog post once that said it needs to end in a nine. And I'm like, I I don't know what to tell you. So we just said, like, I think we've, I think we know something that other people don't know. We're just going to do it this way. And as a result, we'll be able to tap into a global talent pool and no one else will be doing this. And hey, that'll be good for us. And, you know you know, sorry for everybody else, I guess.
0: (laughs) Give us the pro-con list, sort of looking back. I mean, like life is all about trade-offs. So there's all these, you know, you get to tap the global talent pool and there's lots of great things. What are the trade-offs involved?
1: The biggest bummer of it all is how you celebrate like epic moments. You do it on Zoom. And so it's not the same as like all being in a room, high-fiving each other and just like, you miss out on that. So that I think is probably the biggest bummer for me.
2: Eric, if you're uh, listening over at Zoom, this is a, this is a feature you should, you guys should build. Yes, like, how do you
1: make, how do you make, yeah, that, that moment feel better. And we found ways to make it feel good. Like, you know, maybe we're 80% as good as being in, being together, but it's still not quite the same. So I think honestly, that's probably the biggest bummer. There's a level of discipline that it requires that not a lot of people are willing to do. Um, You know, there's some communication overhead that you have to put the effort in on. But I don't think that's actually a trade-off. I actually think that's a good thing. Like, as your company gets bigger anyway, you're going to need that discipline. You're going to need to be good at communication. So I just think it forces you to think about that stuff earlier in your company's life cycle, which forces you, when you get there, you'll be better. You'll be more prepared for it
2: it's interesting so you, so you guys have literally published a an ebook about how to build a remote culture which we'll link to it's awesome you write in there a bit about like making sure when you're hiring you need to hire the right type of people who are gonna succeed in this but i'm wondering hearing what you're saying now and you talk about that being like excellent written communication is important hearing you talk about it now are you, could you maybe even say, like, no, that's just important, period, and this all like, well, help see,
1: you. Yeah. My co-founder was actually on a podcast with Kevin Hale, the co-founder of Wufu, talking about this. And he was, Mike was sort of enumerating these, these things that make good remote workers. And Kevin goes, whoa, 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 whoa. That's just people who are good at their job, period. He said it a little tongue-in-cheek, but I do think there's some truth to that, where it's, these skills make you good at any job but in a remote work they're sort of necessary
2: so i have to ask you are open about and talk about you've built this so you use slack you use zoom you use google drive lots of other you know tools that are you know you've documented out there but you also have this internal tool async that you've built as you describe it it sounds awesome can you tell us like more (laughs) about it
1: it's like a blog meets reddit i guess is probably the best way to think about it the biggest value it gives us is it's a place for like slower form communication, like more intentional thinking, uh, like company announcements, key strategies, things like that. I find Slack is so fast-paced. The half-life of a Slack message is like an hour. Like if you don't see it in the hour, like you know, might as well have not existed at all. Well, and it's not uh, the right
2: medium to, to document something thoughtful.
1: It isn't really. And so async is kind of the that you know that version of communication that's maybe like between a wiki and slack where like wiki is very permanent it's like hey this is sort of our forever documentation but async is like hey what's important to us this week or this month and it's slower form an async post might live on for a full week or something like that uh, maybe a little longer we've made it somewhat dynamic so right now the the homepage is dynamic So that it adjusts based on like, what's it like, hey, these are the posts that sort of everyone should look at. You have your own personal feed that's also dynamic based on who your manager is, who your teammates are, like other authors you read regularly. So it tries to like say, here's some other things that you should probably be paying attention to inside the company. And it just sort of allows everyone to like keep tabs on things that are like, you know, just take the blinders off a little bit, I guess
2: yeah you talked a little bit about online and in the book about it being kind of like a a replacement for what would be an internal email or I'm thinking like an internal memo like you know
1: yeah, every is. now
2: and like yeah, you'd send like somebody might send either whether it's a executive leader or somebody else just be like you know here's a here's a multi paragraph thing of like thoughts I have that are like important, but not so important that you're gonna like you know write it on the walls. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I and that's how I use it. You know, every week I write like a multi-paragraph memo to the team that's like what's on Wade's mind. And sometimes it's like product things, sometimes it's like cultural things that are going on, sometimes it's like customer related issues. And it's just a way for me to like you know, get what's on my mind out there and it builds alignment. It builds like, cause otherwise I would have to tell the exec team and then they'd have to tell their managers and then they'd have to tell their managers and then they'd, tell their, and then they'd tell their ICs. And then who knows what the people on the edges actually hear. You know, they right, might whoa. hear.
0: All right, wait. So how, how can I license this thing? <laughs>
1: uh, you know, uh, not, you can't right now, but like it has crossed our mind that like, maybe this <laughs> would be a good thing to sell. <laughs>
0: All right, one one last question on remote work. It has been uh, espoused that the folks over at GitLab um, sort of have this belief that if we were to sell, and we you know we want to be a company that IPOs, and they've b- been very public about documenting that. If we were to sell, the the prevailing wisdom is that a remote company takes a fifty percent haircut on valuation. And this show is ostensibly about acquisition. so I figured may as well ask the question: Do you do you have any thoughts on that? Like, do you think it's true that there's some sort of valuation haircut that happens because? you know when an acquirer thinks there'll be higher attrition or something like that.
1: I think in 2012, yes, but today I think that's not even true. In fact, you might even be able to get a premium for it because I think companies are realizing that they're they're going to need to be global companies. They're going to need to work with distributed teams. And so an entirely distributed org is going to be bring in an expertise that no like it's going to be hard to build on your own. So I think there's an argument to be said that you might be able to get a premium for it.
2: Interesting. One last topic we'd be also totally remiss if we didn't cover related to that. Can you talk to us a little bit about your financing strategy at the company and capital raising and lack thereof? And, you know, see, you guys have raised less than $3 million in total, right? And are at well above a 50 million dollar revenue run rate you're profitable you're cash flow positive all this you're an amazing company obviously that sounds amazing but are there any trade-offs along the way as you you know looking back on all this that like making those decisions
1: for us i don't know that we traded off on anything like i think we more money did not mean more success for us we had other bottlenecks that we had to to take on and deal with so money wasn't the trade-off for us and, and so that's how we always thought about it, which was, what's the blocker in our org? What's causing us to not get adoption in the market at a way that we want to get adoption? Like, what's holding us, our, our mission back? And let's laser focus in on those things uh, and try and fix some of that stuff up first, uh, rather than throwing more people, because really what you're talking about when you're raising money is you're saying, hey, let's throw more people at this problem. We didn't feel like more people at it is the, the solution.
2: You're either saying more, more people, more fixed costs, or, you, or or you're saying lots of companies doing this now, more variable costs, more marketing dollars.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. Like, but uh, <laughs> I guess, I mean, you could just throw a bunch of marketing spend <laughs> at it and like lose all that money, right. um, which maybe is a. I mean, that's how like you know Casper and some of these other companies have built their business. But you know, look what's happened to them. Right. Like, that's
2: exactly. Clearly,
1: not a great way to build a business. <laughs>
0: Well, Wade, that's a great transition into the, the final point here. Do you have any advice that you would offer to other founders or aspiring founders before we let you go?
1: Just going back to like the pricing strategy, you know, I, talk, I talked about how we like did that in a, in a night. We as founders have at Zapier have certainly been prone to overthinking things. I, I think the thing we're constantly reminding ourselves is just go for it and like don't be afraid of being a little weird about it either like if your sort of conviction is telling you to do something that's unconventional it's hard to stand out so unconventional stands out um so if you sort of have conviction in a thing just go for it and you might be onto something
0: i love it where can listeners find you on the internet
1: at wade foster on twitter is probably the best place
0: well, Wade, thank you so much. Thank you for building a product that runs much of acquired's infrastructure with uh, Zapier powering a lot of. Uh, ben, is, yeah. ben is
2: a power user.
1: Well, we've just, <laughs> yeah, we've just set up uh, episode two here, I think. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Would love that. We'll have to have you back.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me.